Welcome to season two of Faith and Freedom Fighters. I'm Robert Muse, co-founder and senior counsel of the American Freedom Law Center. And as always, I'm joined by my fellow co-founder, senior counsel and freedom fighter, David Yerushami. Obviously, the world today is talking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And we too will spend most of our time today discussing this development. As in addition to being a top-notch litigator, my colleague is also an expert in geopolitical strategic policy and national security. So he will be providing uh, likely most of the insights as to this, uh, this Russian invasion. Uh, but before we begin our discussion on this invasion, which I guess is now no longer a minor incursion per Biden's prior inane remarks, I want to mention a, a Fox News story that is related to one of our recently filed cases. And this story is, uh, is titled, Idaho School Board Joins 21 States Severing Ties with NSBA After Domestic Terrorism Letter to the Department of Justice. The NSBA is the National School Boards Association. And by, uh, by counts of this letter, there is apparently 29 states that have distanced themselves from the NSBA's letter. Now, this was a letter that the NSBA wrote, uh, sent it to the, the White House, it went to the Department of Justice, um, complaining about all these parents who are, who are threatening you know, school board officials because they happen to object to you know, critical race theory and other inane and immoral policies that they're imposing upon the students. And so this National School Board Association, made up primarily of progressives, reached out to their progressive buddies in the White House. And in fact, there's uh, evidence that we've uncovered and we've seen it's actually it's in open sources now that the, uh, the Biden administration actually um, helped orchestrate this letter, which then became a pretext for Merrick Garland, the attorney general of the United States, to issue his infamous uh, memo, memo last October but it was more than just the memo. His, essentially, his policy of targeting uh, parents and other private citizens who dare to speak out at school board meetings, uh, objecting to the way that their children are being indoctrinated with this uh, progressive uh, agenda, this progressive garbage, this claptrap that, they, that they, they're peddling in, these, uh, in the public schools. And they're being labeled as domestic terrorists because they speak out at these public school board meetings, which are public forums for speech. These school boards are government officials. This is all protected by the First Amendment. Yet Merrick Garland, uh, with a wink and a nod to his progressives at, these, uh, at the national school board level, you know, fired a very large shot across the bow of these private citizens, identifying them as domestic terrorists, marshalling the, the immense, vast law enforcement resources of the federal government, and put these parents squarely in the, in the targets. Why? Because they wanted to chill that speech. They want to frighten people away. They want to change behavior uh, by doing that. And consequently, that's unconstitutional. So we filed, we filed a federal civil rights lawsuit on, a bunch of, uh, on behalf of a bunch of parents and a parents' organization. The parents are mainly from Loudoun County, Virginia. And as you probably uh, recall, Loudoun County, Virginia was really the epicenter of all of this, and, and quite frankly, the the impact that these parents had, and really as a strong grassroots effort, uh, affected the uh, the the race for governor, and now a Republican governor, 
is uh, is uh, is the governor of Virginia, which is very much a purple, if not a um, a blue state uh, these days. So, um, and again, this this uh, this this letter was just was just an absolute pretext for Garland to again not issue not only issue the memo, but they've also created threat tags uh, for individuals who might be considered a quote unquote threat to these school officials, that their speech might be harassing or intimidating. Well, guess what? Harassing and intimidating speech is still protected by the First Amendment. The First Amendment has very, very narrow, limited categories of speech that's uh, restricted. And, and everybody understands what the purpose and effect of the what the actions of the Attorney General. It was to silence uh, speech with which he disagrees, with which the administration disagrees. And that uh, being the speech of these parents who object to critical race theory, these sex ed programs, these uh, draconian COVID restrictions, which are useless and meaningless. And so now we have, uh, there's 28, 29 states who officially distanced themselves from the letter, but there's now 21 states who took further action and have actually severed all their ties with the National School Board, uh, National School Boards Association, which is good, right? Because they have less members, they have less dues, they have less support, um, and you have 21 out of 50 states that are that are breaking away from these organizations. That's what it's going to take, right? Not just our, you know, our lawsuits calling in, you know, um, you know, calling out these action by government officials. You know, Merrick Garland just assumes he can get away with this nonsense, and Biden and all these progressives, right? They're tyrants. They're dictators. And, uh, and, you know, you need to stop them. But one of the, you know, we try to do it in, in court, use all the resources we have, but also the actions of the parents um, are, are very important. You know, I've always said, and I, I tell those people all the time, you know, we're lawyers. So we're advocates. We advocate for, you know, people who want to stand up for their rights, but it still takes the plaintiffs, the people who want to stand up and have to speak out. So um, this, is, uh, this is good news. I, I'd like to see this NSBA just wither on a vine and just go away by way of the dinosaurs, as well as all these other, you know, left-wing progressive organizations that, uh, that seem to want to control our lives. So I just wanted to raise that before we, because uh, this story just, um, just recently came out on the, uh, on the 23rd, uh, which, was, which was yesterday, about all these, uh, these, these state school board associations just saying, nope, we've had enough with this national association, and um, they, don't, they don't speak for us, they don't stand for us, and so we're severing our ties. So, David, any comments on that before we uh, go into the topic du jour today being the Russian invasion? Well, I think your characteristic of your characterization of um, Garland and the rest of these government officials who engage in these kinds of practices are really tyrants. And of course, that's going to provide a parallel analysis on the international scene. If you, if you allow a tyrant or a bully, and we all know this, this is you know, folklore and common knowledge. If you allow a bully to uh, engage in bullying tactics, then you're simply going to invite more bully, right? There's no appeasement of a bully. The only thing that stops a bully is force or the threat of the real threat of force. And once they realize that you're going to fight back, even if they're going to lose, we were talking about this before the podcast, but even if they 
They just think they're going to get bloodied or hurt, but they might still be victorious. They're going to think long and hard about engaging in those practices. So I always see some of what we do in the courts, even when we know we're up against Obama-like judges and, and ideological, you know, prejudices in favor of the progressive movement against anything conservative, um, we're still punching back at the tyrants and they do feel it. It changes their behavior. Rob and I wrote a book on lawfare um, and we talk about this very notion of what we do at American Freedom Law Center. Um, we don't always have to win a lawsuit to have effective lawfare. And I think um, in addition to what we do in court, what parents do, what the average citizen does, what the trucker does in Canada, what the truckers might do in DC, it's standing up to tyranny. And um, I think all of this is a good thing, whether it changes the tide, you know, we'll have to see if there's enough of this to really make a difference. Right, and, and make no mistake, we do have tyrants in our government right now. Look at all these draconian measures from COVID, what they were trying to do to the parents, silence them. And, uh, and we have tyrants at the international level, which will lead us to the, uh, the primary topic we want to talk, uh, discuss today, and that is this uh, uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine and, and what Biden's response you know, has, been, uh, has been to date. I, I, I mean, think about what a, what a blunder, the, uh, those prior comments about, well, you know, if it's a minor incursion, apparently that's okay, <laughs> but, but we don't want an invasion. And so what's a minor incursion? A minor incursion by military into a, into a, uh, into a sovereign nation? Uh, this, I mean, there, there's a reason why uh, Putin chose this time, you know, to go into Ukraine. And he didn't do it when, uh, when President Trump uh, was president. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, there's, there was an article, and I, I just want to start off talking about this article, and there's several other things I wanted to, I wanted to pull up. But one of them was just about, this was, a, uh, this was an article from Fox News where, um, you know, Buck Sexton went, went on a, I mean, he was unleashed when he read this blog post from MSNBC's uh, Rachel Maddow. And she says, why didn't Russia invade Ukraine during Trump's term? Question mark. Perhaps because Putin was so pleased to see Trump pursuing goals in line with Moscow's agenda. I mean, what an, what an absolutely stupid, inane, you know, comment to, to, to make. I mean, if, and it's just reverse, right? One of the things that, um, you know, we talked about before coming on, in my view, what, what, what has precipitated a lot of this and given Putin power is this whole new, new uh, Green New Deal stuff, where we, we've, we were a net exporter of, uh, of fossil fuels and natural gas, and when Trump was president, Biden shut that all off. And now Putin, that's where he gets his power from too, is from, is from, from the, uh, these, the, the fuel and the, the, the resources that are needed for that. They have it and Europe relies on him for, for doing that. It, it, these, these leftist progressives, they just don't, they don't get it. There's one, one of the articles that I, that I pulled up, it was of today from uh, Andy McCarthy, our friend of ours who writes at National View. Review and it said it's titled "When Obama Left Ukraine Defenseless," and the gist of the article is that you know Obama and actually uh, um, the Indiana uh, Senator uh, Richard Lugar, they they went on this quest to de-arm 
to de-arm uh, the Ukraine. In fact, they got federal funding to do that. Here's this is a uh, this is this article from Andy McCarthy is reporting from a, an article that the Daily Mail had written back uh, in March, and it says, as U.S. Senator Barack Obama won 48 million dollars in federal funding to help Ukraine destroy thousands of tons of guns and ammunition, weapons which are now unavailable to the Ukrainian army as it faces down Russian President Vladimir Putin during his invasion of Crimea. So this is back correct. In August 2005, just seven months after his swearing in, Obama traveled to eastern Ukraine with then Indiana Republican Senator Dick Lugar, touring a conventional weapon site. The two met in Kiev with President Viktor Yushchenko making the case that an existing cooperative threat reduction program covering the destruction of nuclear weapons should be expanded to include artillery, small arms, anti-aircraft weapons, and conventional ammunition of all kinds. After a stopover in London, the senator returned to Washington and declared mm -hmm. that the U.S. should devote funds to speed up the destruction of more than 400,000 small arms, 1,000 anti-aircraft missiles, and more than 15,000 tons of ammunition and so this and, and you know when, when i was reading this article right and and andy uh so and, and there was a quote from uh, from this press release apparently that was uh related to uh, you know obama's contributions press relief it says ukraine's stocks of conventional weapons would ensure quote this excuse me eliminating ukraine's stocks of conventional weapons would ensure quote the safety of the ukrainian people and people around the world by keeping them out of conflict around the world, end quote. And then Andy ends its article uh, stating that went well, no. Right, it's, it's, when I read this article, it was like, okay, this is, uh, you know, international, uh, you know, a form of gun control at the international level. We're gonna disarm Ukraine, take all their guns away from them. That way there'll be less weapons out there. So there'll be more peace. Oh, that that makes a lot of sense, right? That makes as much sense at the at the international level, right? The same gun control crazies at the at the at the national level, right? They want to take the guns away from law-abiding citizens because that's going to reduce crime. But the criminals always have the guns, right? It's just it's remarkable with what's uh, what's going on in uh, in Ukraine, and you know Trump was the only one that was gonna was gonna defend them. The one thing, though, that's it's and it's kind of interesting because, um, you know, as a guy who spent 13 years um, on active duty in, in the military, in the Marine Corps, mostly as an infantry officer deployed to the first Gulf War, you know, we we operate on uh, in at least on, on the Marine Corps side. And I think the Army kind of takes this approach as well. We operate on this concept of commander's intent. Right. And commander's intent and always has to be uh, properly crafted in terms of what you want to do to the enemy what's the objective that you want to accomplish in terms of what you you know at the at the end of the day at the at the you know you you're obviously in a conflict with the enemy and so what is what is your intent on on what the the objective is and i'm still waiting you know obviously there's you know there's there's the, the world is unstable when you have a dictator like uh like putin who's you know invading a neighboring country you got Putin and now China, you know, Russia and China getting very friendly here, right? They're, um, they have obviously a long history of, of animosity, but they certainly have some common objectives here, which, you know, who knows where this could end, that could end up, uh, that could end up going. But to me, when, whenever we're involved in a, in a, in a conflict or a conflict like this, this erupts, 
where we're going to not only expend, you know, vast resources, and it is going to impact us here in the United States, but also, you know, there's going to be troops. You know, we say, well, you know, we, we move troops into the area, right? This, uh, our true treasures, our, our young, uh, you know, American men and women who, who bravely put on the uniform to, to fight. I want Biden to articulate clearly what, what, is our, what is our national interest here? What is our ultimate objective with what's going on in, uh, in Ukraine from a, you know, from a national perspective? And it's, you know, until you really know that, you, what the military could potentially do or anything after that is, it's, you're, you're, just, you're just, you know, swinging in the dark. You know, uh, Clausewitz, the famous um, military historian, famously said, you know, that war is a continuation of politics by other means. And so if you don't, if you don't have clearly defined what your political objectives are, things get real messy real quickly. And, um, you know, this is obviously uh, this this has gotten real, me real messy real quickly because obviously uh, whatever threats Biden was making and the phone conversations he had with Putin, um, Putin blew him off. He just blew him off. He invaded Ukraine. Um, so does that show? What does that show? I think it shows that uh, America is weak with this president on the national stage. If any, at, at a minimum, it just shows. And quite frankly, all you have to do is watch and see with your own eyes. This uh, our president is he's weak. He's weak mentally, and um, his his policies are weak. He's surrounded by weak people, and uh, and and Putin knows it. He's a, he's a bully, and he can sense weakness. And he senses weakness in our country because of its leadership. And that's why he invaded Ukraine. And here we are today. Uh, David, I'll turn it over to you. You can, you can mop up or whatever the mess that I was making there when I went on my, uh, my little monologue. Well, it's whatever expertise I might have, I think you matched it in your analysis. The reality is, as you pointed out, the, the, the first thing we do understand, and we talked about this about the bully just a moment ago, is the idea that Ronald Reagan established the notion of peace through strength. And that simply wasn't a doctrine that was um, necessary and effective during the Cold War. That's required at all times. I was just on the phone with a friend of mine, and we were doing our kind of daily biblical study and at the end of the call, you know, the time of saying goodbye, said, could you imagine in the year 2022 that we would still have a tyrant, you know, trying to invade another country? And I asked him, I said, well, why would you think that 2022 would be different than 1822 or 1922? Human nature is human nature. And you can see it in the schoolyard with the bully and the weaklings. You can see it at work with the type A aggressive individuals who tend to rise to the top and become the CEOs and the COOs and the billionaires and the trillionaires that we have today. And the rest of the people who are essentially, not the rest, but a good number, just sheepish. What do they do? They join the social media you know, platforms and the best they can do is, is be snarky and, and send anonymous comments, right? And, and attack people and try to find some way to get viral. 
those are the, the kind of the, the, the people who just chirp from the sidelines. But the, the major questions you need to ask in any international situation as we have in Ukraine are one, why is Putin invading the Ukraine? What are the stated reasons and what are the putative reasons? Two, why now? What makes today different than yesterday or the Trump yesteryears? And um, once you define that, then you have to ask yourself, does America have, as you pointed out, Rob, does America have a national security interest or some other interest to protect in order to oppose the invasion? And then if it does, what are the risks and benefits of the different ways to oppose it? And how do they end up in the calculus? I've said before, and I'll say again, um, I thought one of Trump's strongest areas was in foreign policy. Um, like in domestic policies and on Twitter, Trump could say some of the oddest things. You could say stupid things, silly things, odd things, um, self-interested things. Um, but the reality is, the world understood that Donald Trump could and would react if he understood there to be a threat to America. That was clear. We saw that when he directed the assassination of the Iranian general who headed up Al-Quds. I don't believe that any past president, uh, including Ronald Reagan, would have had what we would call the chutzpah, you know, the internal fortitude to do such a thing. But that sends a message to every dictator and every general out there. So if you ask the question, why is Putin invading the Ukraine? Well, his stated explanation is that um, there are um, Initially, there were Crimeans, because recall that he essentially took Crimea from the Ukraines without much of a fight at all. And in using the so-called separatists, which are essentially, you know, either Russians who had been living there or Russia files who had so aligned themselves. Um, he had um, earlier, of course, um, a Ukrainian government that was very much puppet state headed up by a leader that was essentially in Putin's back pocket. And the Ukrainian people rebelled against that, threw the despot, the Russian puppet despot out and elected their own leadership. So Putin's argument today is there are still areas outside of Crimea in the, along the Ukrainian-Russian border that are filled with uh, Russians and Slavs who are more aligned to Russia than Ukraine. Now, the obvious unexpressed rationale um, 
oh, in fact, there's, there's at least two. One is that Putin, as the former head of the KGB during the Soviet era, has never given up on the idea of reestablishing the world global position of the Soviet Union, where it remained um, one of the two superpowers, then became one of the three superpowers. Russia isn't considered a superpower other than its nuclear arsenal, not economically, not diplomatically, um, not strategically. And Putin wants to regain that position. And one can play psych psychoanalyst and try to understand what's in, going on in his mind that he would want to do that. But that's not the job of a national security expert. The job of a national security expert is to ask, um, what is his stated explanation? And what is his other obviously historical reasoning? Now, there's another stated argument that isn't simply, you know, uh, a ruse by Putin, and that is in, in reestablishing the Soviet Union, Russia as the power that the Soviet Union appeared to be, it always was essentially mu pretty much a paper tiger other than its nuclear arsenal, which is nothing to, to uh, you know, ignore, but um, other than that threat, they had no, um, even though in the 1960s and 70s, we were talking about the economic might of the Soviet uh, Union. It, we found out later that that was not the case. But his explanation is, um, we don't want NATO on our borders. NATO represents a military threat. And just like you would not want Russia in Cuba, or in Mexico, or in Central America, or in Canada, we don't want NATO on the border of our, of our backyard in Ukraine, in Crimea, in Bulgaria, in any of the play, other former Soviet um, republics or essentially holdings that gained their independence after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So you have that rationale. And that's going to be an important rationale when you consider what our national security interest is. So then you want to ask, okay, so we, we have this basic understanding of why Putin's doing what he's doing. He wants to gain a greater security power. By the way, he also wants to gain economic power. And this is the point Rob was making earlier. And again, when it, we talk about our national security interests, this comes into play. And it comes into play when you ask, why didn't he do any of this during the Trump? Why did he do it during the Obama era? Why was he making noise during the Bush two era? Why did he then go quiescent during the Trump era and then get quite active again immediately upon Biden's election? One of the, the most important levers of power to Russia are its natural gas, oil, and coal reserves. It took Crimea in large measure because of the natural gas reserves in the Black Sea off of Crimea. In fact, by taking Crimea, it halved, cut in half, Ukraine's natural gas reserves. 
Russia makes a lot of money selling oil into the market, selling natural gas to Europe, and just recently entered into a deal with India for some tens of millions of tons of coal, and recently entered into an understanding with China that China would buy 100 million tons of coal from Russia. So this is a huge important aspect of Putin's ability to reach out into his neighborhood and become hegemonic, to try to dominate. So why didn't he do it during the Trump era? Well, pretty clear, there's a couple of reasons. It started with George Bush too, and that was a good thing that George Bush did, many good things, many terrible things, was to start building up America's oil independence. And Trump expedited that to the point during the Trump years, and by the way, Obama had put that on the decline. Obama, Trump opened him back up, the, national, the, the, the gas lines, the, the shale oils, opening up reserves that had been shut down by the federal government, made us a net positive exporter of oil and gas. And what did that do to the world prices? During the Trump era, gas prices were at their lowest. What is, and at that point, the Russian economy was literally in the tank. The moment Trump leaves office and the quirkiness of his foreign policy that meant that Putin couldn't predict how Trump was going to act. And, you know, the idea by Rachel Maddow and the rest of the progressives that that was because they were aligned. Aligned how? Show me how Trump and Russia were ever aligned in anything. What was that? that I mean, that's just a continuation of that absolutely false, demonstrably false Trump Russia collusion, you know, right. uh, 2016 election narrative. I mean, it just the absurdity of them continuing to spin that yarn. Um, I mean, they're just liars. I don't know how else. Right. And, and we liars. heard the same thing just days ago, just days yeah. ago, right? Trump was on some radio program talking about the fact that, um, you know, this wouldn't have occurred during his administration, but he had serious doubts about the national security mm -hmm. interests of the U.S. going into Ukraine and so forth and so on. But he remarked again in his kind of, I say clumsy, but you know, it might be clumsy as a fox. Yeah. He says, you know, Putin is handling this in a very canny way, right? In other words, he was giving credit to Putin for having manipulated the entire world. So what does the left say? Ah, there you go. See, Trump is jumping right into Putin's back pocket again. And that's false. That's obviously false. Trump respects powerful men because they're the ones who are running the world. And that's not a knock on powerful women. They're just not running the world. And Putin right now is the powerful man in the sandbox. And all Trump is doing is saying, if you don't appreciate his strategic and tactical wherewithal, if you just call him a, 
a, a you know crazy dictator, a warring dictator, a, a you know tyrannical leader. If that's all you do and say we have to oppose it, then you're not thinking strategically. What Trump is saying is you got to know your enemy, and the man is not stupid, meaning Putin. And the man knows how to manipulate the world stage. And he also knows weakness. So what did he see after Trump leaves? And by the way, the idea that they wanted Trump in. We have Clapper, the national, one of the national heads of the national security apparatus under Obama, saying at one point that during the whole Russia collusion nonsense that they had all ginned up. Clapper and Brennan and Obama and Rice and Hillary Clinton, they ginned that up. He literally said that, you know, the Russian trolls who were going into Facebook and claiming to be Americans, um, they tipped the election and they were the difference between Hillary Clinton winning and losing and Trump winning the election without any evidence. And of course, it's silly, the idea that um, even, you know, a thousand trolls putting out a hundred thousand different comments on various social media platforms, praising Trump and demeaning Clinton. But we also found there were some demeaning Trump and praising Clinton. But even assuming that to be the case, that that somehow shifted someone's thinking about the election. Is that all it takes is some anonymous commentator, some John Smith sitting in um, St. Petersburg on Facebook, claiming to be an American saying, Hillary Clinton is a, you know, this, that, and you need to vote for Trump. Do you think that that is going to change people's votes? And if you do, that doesn't speak very highly of democracy. And by the way, what they were claiming that the people of the trolls in St. Petersburg were doing was nothing that progressives and conservatives and Americans do all the time. Right now, the illegality of it was, and this is just an aside, is they were claiming the idea of actual Americans and claiming to be that which they weren't. So um, that made it a bit of a crime. But but going in and and trying to affect people's opinions about who's the better candidate—that's what we do in a democracy. And the fact that we have an open democracy that that Russians can do it from St. Petersburg. So what? What do you think we do? Do you think we don't try to affect uh, democratic elections and not so democratic elections in, in other parts of the world? Of course we do. We do in Iran. We do in North Korea. There are no elections in North Korea. We certainly did in South America for years. That was our backyard. And through propaganda, through Radio Free America, through all sorts of mechanisms, we tried to influence the, the people in those countries to vote for governments that would support us. Now, so you come back to Trump and to Putin, and what what is the difference now? Why did the quiescent Putin become, and by the way, he wasn't entirely quiescent, right? He still went after his own Russian journalist. He still poisoned people with radioactive material. He still killed them. He still locked them up. He still did all that, but it was domestic. Why didn't he do this during the Trump era? Well, what did he see? He saw a Trump that he could not predict. 
because he sat there and asked himself, is Trump being stupid, narcissistic, or is he clever as a fox? He didn't know. I don't know. But because he didn't know that and he saw Trump take strong actions to make America a energy um, producer, net positive energy producer, he saw Trump putting much greater funds and armament into the military. He saw Trump make an entire difference in the Middle East. The peace treaties that Israel entered into with the, the, the Gulf, some of the Gulf states and the other Arab states that had no one gave anyone the opportunity, thought that Trump could have had the opportunity or the basis to create those, those agreements, Trump did. And he did because he appointed a hugely pro-Israel ambassador, UN representative. He moved the embassy, something no president was courageous enough to do, even though every president said it should be moved. He moved it to Jerusalem. And everyone thought that was going to cause a conflagration, that the Arab world would go crazy, the Muslim world would go nuts. Guess what? The Muslim world started entering into agreements with Israel as a result of that strength. Peace through strength. Now, what did Putin see in its opposite? Putin saw Biden come in and immediately, and without forethought, dismantle America's energy producing ability completely and talk about the new green deal and all this other stuff. Now, what is Putin thinking? What that means is America is going to become dependent upon international gas prices. America is going to be hurting its own economy by causing the increase in cost of energy, not just because gas prices will go up because the supply from the US is going down dramatically, but because the US is imposing all these environmental restrictions on petroleum products. And alternative energy simply doesn't cut it. As I've told many people, you know, I bought, I'm out here in California, I bought a EV, uh, at least an EV car, electric vehicle, totally electric. And I love the opportunity to be able to plug it at night, never go to a gas station. But there's two problems with, with that. One is I would not take my car across the state of California because you're not going to find enough EV stations that are working and not occupied and you don't have to spend six or seven hours waiting around for a charge. That's number one. Number two, guess what? The energy and the carbon footprint to manufacture the batteries of that car, I would have to drive my EV for like 15 or 20 years. I don't know the exact number, but it's a long time to even break even. And guess what? I'm not going to drive that car for 10 or 15 years. I'm going to drive it for three and then get a new leased car. So I'm not helping the environment by driving an EV car, quite honestly. Cost me 11 bucks, you know, $6 at home to fill up my batteries, to recharge them. That's why I do it. But Putin sees this nonsense. He then sees Biden's fecklessness on the world stage vis-a-vis -vis China. 
he sees that China is able to literally steal intellectual property of U.S. companies and the U.S. government. He sees what China was able to get away with with the COVID virus. Think about it. I mean, you just have to just think a little bit. A virus starts in China. It's killing more people than any virus we've known, as far as I can tell. Putting more people in hospitals, shutting the entire world down, especially the Western world, and ruining our economy. And what does the U.S. do? What does Biden do in response to that? Trump says, China's at fault. This is the China flu, and we want to find out why China started this. How did it start it? What was its purpose? Did it have a purpose? Was it an accident? Trump was making the noise. Now, his administrative bureaucratic machinery refused to move on that, to be sure. But he certainly was making it clear who he thought was at fault. What does Biden do? Has a little committee formed, a little commission, and they come out with this report saying, gee, you know, it's possible it started in the lab, but China's not being very cooperative. Oh, my goodness, they're not helping us. And so I guess we'll just move on and just impose more vaccine mandates and more of this mandates and more of that. How in the world do you allow a foreign government to kill that many Americans and not want to know what their motivation was? Was it an accident? Was it a lab? Was it a, a, a food market? Was it a biological weapon? We have no idea. And Putin is watching this. Now, everyone else is watching this, and certainly China is. So, so Putin sees this incredible weakness. He sees Biden cutting back on the U.S. military. You, you forgot to add one of the, uh, to me, one of the greatest debacles, Afghanistan. Afghanistan, you saw that. You see the feminization mm. of the U.S. military. Now, that doesn't mean I'm opposed to women in the military. If women wants to serve, God bless them. But when you, let's call it the wokeness of the military. That's it. Yeah. But in my, in my generation, we would have called it the feminization, meaning you're turning a, a military power, which is based upon strength, and you're turning it into something that wants to talk through problems, wants to be inclusive. And that's not what a military is for. It's the same reason why George Bush, too, got it wrong when he, when he said that we can do nation building in Iraq and nation building in Afghanistan. Militaries don't build anything. They know how to destroy things. And the U.S. military knows how to destroy things better than any other military. And that's what they're good at. They're not good at building something. Putin sees all this, sees this incredible progressive side. He sees the, the George Floyd protests. He sees the idea that we're, 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 we're blaming ourselves for systemic racism. He sees that, that, that serious politicians, not the AOCs of the world, but serious politicians, meaning Nancy Pelosi, third most powerful person in the US, we see her talking in ways and others in ways that shame 
the U.S. So he's thinking to himself, what is the downside for me taking, what are they going to do? They're going to pose a bunch of sanctions and then guess what's going to happen. And you can predict this, by the way, you see this with the same fecklessness that Israel deals with Hamas and Gaza. Hamas and Gaza throws bombs into Israel. Israel invades, shuts it, the world screams, and eventually they, they walk back and they have some kind of truce. And um, Hamas maybe has a dead soldier or a live soldier captured. And then they tell Israel, okay, we'll trade you that one dead body or that one live soldier for a thousand terrorists that we know have killed Israelis. They do the exchange. And then a year later or a year and a half later, we're right back at the same scenario because Hamas knows there's no ultimate threat from Israel. The world will scream. Putin knows that all these sanctions, but guess what? They can claim that the pipeline that they built to feed natural gas to Europe is, a, is just a hundred. I need to shut off your video. You're on a roll there, David. I want to hear what the uh, the natural pipe was. Well, until he comes, he had technical difficulties out there in California until he uh, until he comes back on. You know, so many uh, critically and, and important points uh, there from a, a national level. To me, one of the main things is when we we lost our ability to be energy independent and to be uh, exporters, net exporters of energy, that that was so detrimental to our national security and our national security interests. Um, and you know, our military has become so woke under this uh, administration, where they, uh, you know, they're they're more concerned about you know whether you have some Trump voters that are in the ranks, you know, red-blooded patriotic Americans. They want all this to be, uh, you know, to be woke. I heard somebody make the comment about, you know, even like at the world stage, the G7, they're, you know, they're more concerned about how many genders there are than uh, worrying about, uh, you know, how we're going to actually work to, uh, you know, to de defend ourselves and so forth. So, I mean, there's all this wokeness, this Green New Deal stuff, this, you know, anti-American sentiment that Black Lives Matters pushing and, you know, we're... we're we're more concerned, you know, in San Francisco, a bunch of school board members got thrown out, thankfully, because they're more concerned about changing the names of schools, uh, getting rid of the names of Abraham Lincoln on the schools, because apparently Abraham Lincoln, the president who fought a civil war and ended slavery, is apparently a, a racist, um, rather than they are about educating the kids and getting rid of all these vaccine mandates and everything else. Um, and, you know, it, it's it's all coming to fruition now. And, and I don't know where this is going to go with uh, with Russia. You know, one of the things I think Biden needs to do right away is reverse all those silly policies. You know, he'll be still be screaming from AOC and the squad and everybody else um, to to get us back to be energy uh, independent. Because this war, this war in the Ukraine, you think the gas prices are high now. You just wait. I mean, it's it's and inflation's bad now. Just wait. Right. And in, in energy prices affect everything right because you have to you know get the the food into the trucks that need fuel to get it to the stores or to fly it you know across the country or whatever so anytime energy costs go up it's not just affecting your 
you know, the, the price at the pump, as it were, is going to affect, you know, what your heating costs are here in the, you know, still in the wintertime, up, uh, certainly up here in northern Michigan. And it's going to affect the food costs, the, you know, transportation costs, everything else. And, um, but, you know, oh, David's, David's, uh, David's back on. I was trying to fill in some. Find, yeah, I, I had to find a new speaker and I'm leaving my video off just because the connection here in Southern California is spotty where I yeah. am. So well, um, the, the bottom line is this, once you've kind of done that analysis and you understand um, what are Putin's stated reasons, what are his historical um, reasons, without getting into his subjective mind, as it were, um, and then you understand why he's doing this now and what he thinks his risks and benefits are. And I was pointing out what's going to happen is that we're going to impose a bunch of sanctions and Putin knows what's going to happen to gas prices, by the way. Yeah. Right? Energy costs are going through the roof now because mm -hmm. war, especially with Russia, who is a big energy exporter, is going to potentially reduce supply and futures, oil futures and natural gas futures are going to go up. And that's going to have an impact on prices, just as you were pointing out, Rob. So he knows that. So what's going to happen? Eventually, the European nations, our NATO allies, are going to cave. Yes, Germany has agreed to shell the pipeline for now, but they're not, that's not going to last. No. They're not going to be able to stand up to this, and Russia will start squeezing back on them. And remember, Russia's in their backyard. And um, what's going to happen? And this is the reason why when Trump first came into power, he questioned NATO. And of course, that shocked the national security world, including the neocons and the conservatives. But he was right to question NATO. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, whether NATO is an effective military force at all is questionable. Essentially, it's America. And if anyone thinks that Germany is going to act um, um, in anyone's interest other than Germany's interest or the UK or Italy or any of the other NATO powers, you simply don't know history very well. And so Putin is, understands this, that yes, there's going to be a bunch of sanctions, but guess what Putin can do? We know that Putin, by the way, who transferred huge amounts of silicon and intellectual property and the, and the know-how to, to engage in all sorts of cyber warfare. Who transferred that intellectual property to Russia? Obama and Hillary as Secretary of State. During that era, our policy was to help build up Russia's Silicon Valley capabilities. And there's actually a, uh, a, a, a city, and I forgot the name of it, starts with an S, um, that's the Silicon Valley of Russia, that we were very much responsible for initiating and building. Putin has the ability to wreak all kind of havoc on our infrastructure. Just a slight cyber attack. And of course, he'll claim, you know, plausible deniability and this intelligence services will say, well, his fingerprints are on it. 
and then we might engage in some counter behavior. But ultimately, Putin knows one thing. Like with nuclear warfare, the U.S. cannot go to war in the cyber world because we have let our infrastructure um, crumble. Our, our, literally, our infrastructure and our intellectual property security measures for the infrastructure crumble. And we see this when we get blackouts, right? You get a, a, a power um, outage in some location because of a short or an over demand or whatever, a surge, and then things just start shutting down. Putin understands this and knows that whatever sanctions the West will impose upon Russia, he can work himself out of by creating enough headaches. And so if he, if he goes up against the U.S. with cyber attack and the U.S. counters with the, its own cyber attack, then guess what happens? Everybody runs to The Hague runs to you know switzerland runs to some neutral corner they start diplomacy and putin says okay i agree to stop if you agree to remove sanctions and guess what we'll do just like with israel israel will turn a thousand known murdering terrorists over for one dead body and you know we praise them for it but as a national security policy it is absolutely insane because they feed the, the, the tyranny and the terrorists. And that's what we'd be doing to Putin. So Putin understands there is very little to be lost under the Biden administration. With Trump, he wouldn't know, maybe Trump would cut off all trade. Maybe Trump would literally shut down the banking industry to Russia. Right now, that's not what we're doing. Right now, what we're doing is we're imposing sanctions on certain banks and certain kinds of transfers, but not everything. And Putin didn't know what Trump would do. Putin well, knows what Biden will do. Yeah, and, and, and the problem, too, is, I mean, look at where the economy is right now with the inflation, with the, you know, the crazy spending the government's doing, the whole energy issue you mentioned. The, Biden has already placed himself in a position of weakness to be able to even to take any, any uh, significant measures. Because you know... That even even the sanctions we place on Russia are going to have uh, international repercussions. Are going to affect, you know, the price of goods and everything else. And we're already at you know at record levels of inflation, so we're already at a bad in a very bad position to even uh, take measures. You know, one one of the you mentioned about the you know the sanctions. That's what they're doing economic sanctions. But as you pointed out, what's chi China's coming to their defense? Right, China's entering into these these uh, you know deals to purchase. Uh, coal from from Russia, and it's going to provide them with the uh, with the resources that they that they need to to survive through these um, through these sanctions. Um, I'll be curious. Apparently, Biden was supposed to be talking today around uh, twelve thirty, which is uh, it's almost uh, one p.m. our my time now. Twelve thirty my time. He's supposed to be talking. So after we get done here, I'm going to go see what he may have uh, may have said about uh, said about all of uh, all of this. But we're we're not in a good position. And and. You know what? The, the last thing I just want to touch upon, because we are running up against the uh, the time here. You know, Putin made a pretty strong and direct threat to anybody who who seeks to intervene in what he's trying to accomplish in uh, in Ukraine. You know, threats. They said, you know, you're going to face repercussions that you've never faced yet in the history of your <laughs> your existence. Basically, that's not exactly what he said, but that was along those lines. And, you know, I know, uh, you know, our good friend, Frank uh, Gaffney at, uh, 
center of security policy and 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 you mentioned about our infrastructure you know we have an electric grid uh, that is very vulnerable to to not just you know a physical attack but also a cyber attack not to mention the banking industry and everything else i mean you we could be seeing if if biden you know decides he's going to do something now which is you know it's this uh you know this battle's already begun I, I wouldn't be surprised if we don't see major blackouts or power shortages or, uh, you know, major, um, uh, major attacks on our banking industry and the ability to, you know, to trade things through the Internet and so forth. I mean, that, all those things are, are very, very real. And, you know, one of the things that I know, um, you know, because I think, you know, Putin did it during, you know, you mentioned about the, uh, the trolls and stuff and Facebook. And, you know, they, they've got these, these uh, third parties that are you know essentially in bed with uh with the government in russia that are you know cyber um experts that are the ones that are gonna you know cause all the havoc so this this is i could see this touching our shores pretty darn quickly right and so that leads to the final piece of the analysis where we run up against the clock so i would suggest this is a teaser for next week because this is still going to be on the front burner and that is okay so we've analyzed the why and the when, um, and we've we've seen the the present how, but we also understand the how and the future. That is to say, Russia could engage in all sorts of um, cyber attacks, all sorts of other ways to go after the U.S. and more likely, more directly against Europe. So then comes the question, okay, what is our national security interest? And um, if once we've identified those interests, what are the risks and benefits of the methodologies that we can utilize to embrace those national security interests or protect them? So those are two separate questions. And um, one obvious, and I'm just going to leave it here, Rob, so we can end this um, at the top of the hour here. One obvious issue is the world is watching, as you pointed out. China apparently accidentally published and took it down its rules of journalistic engagement, how to cover to its journalists and anyone else in China the Russian invasion. And what they essentially were saying, what the Communist Party was saying is, treat this with kid gloves, because remember, we're going to need Russia's help on the Taiwan issue. Yep. So China is looking at Taiwan. And um, if you want to understand um, our national security interests, and you, you see Taiwan, you see Iran, you see North Korea, you see every other tyrant in the world, and future tyrants we're going to come to the fore, um, looking at how we respond. So our national security interest does have that implication, but what I want to warn against is not to play the neocon game, right? The neocons are the conservatives who, you know, up until their embarrassment, I don't know if they still hold that rule, they thought that they could export uh, U.S. democracies to all sorts of cultures and peoples, right? So they, they thought Islam would be accepting of Western democracy in Iraq and Afghanistan, and that, of course, became silly, um, if not fatal to thousands and 
tens of thousands of, of U.S. wives. So, but in other words, you don't want to just simply say, well, this is the domino effect. If we allow Russia to do this and China, that's the argument we used in Vietnam, um, which was true in, in large measure, but because we weren't prepared to go to war in Vietnam and actually fight the war to win, our national security interest was actually undermined. So in thinking about what is our national security interest, what is the threat of the domino effect, um, you then have to look at what can we do? What are the methodologies that we can do to protect those national security interests? And are we prepared to engage them? Right. So I think that part of the analysis should wait for, for next week. All right. And I'll add to that mix. Um, we also saw in, in terms of uh, uh, flexing muscles, we saw when uh, as soon as Trump left and Biden took over, North Korea started Upping, upping the ante and, and doing, you know, massive multiple um, missile, uh, missile uh, testing and, and firing. And, and so who knows? I mean, that's a whole nother component, another whole nother, uh, you know, area is, uh, is the Korean peninsula with uh, North Korea right. and South Korea. So this is, yeah, you know, when, when you don't have a strong United States um, economically and military and militarily, um, the uh, the entire world is is a less safe place, and right now with uh, this Biden administration, the world is a less safe place. Um, so, to be sure, yeah, that's uh, so. That's all the time we have for today. David left us with some uh, teasers, and and I'm sure there'll be a lot to talk about on this topic as well as others um, by next week. And so, again, we look forward to that discussion, and we thank all of you for uh, joining us today. As you know, our video casts are posted on our Rumble channel. And as I've mentioned previously before, we officially dumped uh, YouTube and Facebook, so you won't find any new postings on, uh, on those. And our podcasts uh, are posted on Spotify, Stitcher, and perhaps any other platforms where you listen to your podcasts and where the censors of those platforms will allow it. So if you like the content, please follow us and uh, please spread the word. Thank you again, and may God bless you, and may he continue to bless America. Amen.